0: coach jones thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today it's a pleasure to speak with you you have the uh, second most wins in ivy league history most ever at yale and you're one of the longest tenured coaches in uh, division one basketball overall i think there's 362 teams these days and you're the fifth longest tenured in uh, in all of division one so very impressive track record i know i know when you joined yale i think there was 316 teams at the time and yale was ranked right around 314 so not a great program when you joined but Um, certainly a great program today and, and in large, thanks to, you know, what you've done there over the last, I think, 25 years or so. Um, so before we dive into, you know, some of the stuff you're doing today and what you've done over the years, coaching Yale basketball, um, I think it'd be interesting to start with a little bit of your early days of coaching when you first got into it. I understand, uh, you know, after you graduated, uh, you played basketball at Albany and you went and graduated and started selling computers for a few years and, and, you know, you were doing quite well there and from a business perspective, making good money and everything like that, but decided uh, you wanted to go and, and coach the JV team and um, ultimately ended up becoming head coach. So maybe you could talk about those early days and what exactly sort of got you snake bit with uh, coaching basketball.
1: Well, Jake, really good to be on with you here. Um, yeah. Um, so I was working for a computer company and as you said, made good money, but I was bored and I got, got to the point where... I didn't think I was doing anything for anybody but myself, Um, and that will play in a little bit here in a minute. I uh, ended up going uh, to Albany to coach the JV team. I was going to get my uh, MBA and and go work on Wall Street because there was a lot of money being made in the uh, late 80s, Um, so I started coaching the JV team, and um, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Uh, I, I I knew basketball, but certainly thought I knew more than I did. And that first team I had was 17 and 3, and I thought coaching was easy. And at that point, I was snake bit. I ended up changing my master's degree from an MBA to educational administration, and and the rest is history. Uh, I've I've been thankful to to do what I do for a living, and uh, I've just been very fortunate.
0: Why do you think you were able to have immediate success uh with the JV team going 17 and three? Um, was it just that you guys had, you know, really good players or an easy schedule? Or was there some aspect of your first season of coaching that you think you did a great job in certain ways? Almost like a you know, a musical artist, they come out with their first album. Sometimes it's like the best album ever.
1: Yeah, I was just lucky. I ran into a, a kid by the name of Jason Graber, who was on a team. And then like I said, I thought coaching was easy. And it's easy when your players are better than everybody else. So that that was the case early on. Uh, But at the same time, it was just the winning. It's the interaction with the young men that you coach. It's those kind of interpersonal communications that really has driven me over my time at Yale and my my time in coaching that makes all the difference for me as a person.
0: Right. So what was the story from there? I know first season, I think you decided – you know, I want to go and and go full-time at this. And uh, I think you had your ambition at like being the head coach of a D1 team by the time you were 35 and ended up getting there a bit before then. Um, What was like the path like for you from going from this first season coaching uh, JV to ultimately becoming a head coach at Yale?
1: Well, I was trying to become a head coach by the time I was 40. I believe I started coaching head coach when I was 35. So, yeah, I got there a little early than expected. And, you know, after that first year, like I said, I was snake-bitten. And this this was just like, you know, all, all feet in. And I just started digesting what I was doing. Uh, that first year, uh, Doc Sowers, the head coach at the time, asked me to go to a clinic in, uh, in Rochester with him from Albany. And, you know, I really wasn't too keen on doing it. I had to drive him in a car and, you know, both ways there and basically a chauffeur. Um, and then I got to the clinic and, and Beeline was talking and, and I couldn't stop writing notes. You know, there were so many things that he was talking about that I didn't know because my, my, my basketball experience as a coach was somewhat fractured and, and small. And, and so I ended up really enjoying that and started putting together a, a binder of all the plays and stuff that I saw that I liked and just became more of a student of the game. And, I you know, I had an opportunity to work for Albany for five years. And then the uh, assistant job came up at Yale. And I was fortunate enough to receive it, to get it um, from Yale. I went to Ohio University for two years, and now I've been back at Yale for 25.
0: Yeah, it's a great story. Um, I wonder, you know, I, I wrote in my initial outreach to you, you know, I the context here. Like, I've had this podcast for a long time. Most of my background is in technology and entrepreneurship and investing. Um, but I called the local high school, and, uh, you know, I wanted to see if I could kind of help out around the the team a little bit. I had a guy when I played in high school who would, you know, he wasn't there for every game or every practice, but he'd just kind of help out. And I was like, you know, I'd like to just sort of help out the kids. I like mentoring younger people, whether it's in career or basketball or whatever it might be. Um, used to be a career. Now it's, you know, become basketball a little bit more. Um, and so I wanted to see if I could help. And they are like, you know, we could use a JV coach. So that's what sort of led me to uh, fall into that position. And uh, we just finished our, you know, the, the first season that I spent coaching and it was, a phenomenal year really like a perfect That i could imagine i could coach for another 10 plus years and not have sort of like a better ending we basically beat the last the best team on our schedule in the last game on their senior night you know away game overtime three-point play to tie it everything like everything you can imagine basically is just an awesome end to a uh, an awesome season and as i'm going into it i'm like well you know I, yeah i played in high school but i was not as good of a player for example as you were i understand at, at albany and Um, even more than that, I didn't really have like the basketball knowledge. Um, I wasn't like, you know, studying the game or practicing all that hard or or anything like that when I was playing. And so as I came into this coaching experience, I'm like, I think I have a lot of the attributes that could make, um, you know, a successful coach, but I I definitely don't have like the basketball knowledge beyond just watching a lot of basketball throughout the course of my life. Um, and so I'm wondering when you started, how much of that did you feel that you had from being a player versus how much did you have from, you know, going clinics and, you know, taking things from Beeline or, or whatever it might be and sort of accumulating your basketball knowledge after you started coaching?
1: Yeah, I certainly did after I started coaching. As I said, like, you know, I, I started coaching and what well, you could my basketball knowledge, you probably could put in a thimble at that time. I, I you know, I was a player. I played the game. Um, I, I watched it. I loved it. But I didn't I didn't understand it fully. I didn't know it fully. Right. and um so that so that was what that that was I was tasked to do so as an assistant at Albany for five years there's a lot to learn because like when you're an assistant coach at a division three school you do a little bit of everything from you know cleaning uh cleaning laundry to mopping floors and you know and driving a driving a van so you have your hand in everything and from there Dakota uh come to Albany I mean come to Yale and as an assistant coach and coaching the division one my first experience and there's just there was just a lot to learn. And, you know, like I said, I I made myself a study of it to to make sure that when I had an opportunity, I was gonna be ready.
0: Right. And how about the difference between being an assistant and being a head coach? It sounds like when you were head coach of JV, you were also assistant uh, of varsity, and you've sort of uh, bounced between mostly you spent time as an assistant before becoming a head coach, but how different and difficult are sort of the transitions from from one to another?
1: Well, the transition for me wasn't, wasn't hard. I I think that what happens with you as an assistant coach, you have this inner voice that grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And it gets to the point where it starts yelling at you that it's your time to be, to to be a head coach. And I remember when I was at Albany, um, you know, I was, you know, maybe my third year in, you know, as my knowledge started to grow and I started to understand more and I wanted to be more impactful to what was going on and what we were doing. And I remember, you know, Talking to Coach Sowers about we could do this, we could do this, we could do that, we could do like and just rambling on to him, and he just he listened to me, and then he stops. He goes, James, when you get your own job, you could do whatever the hell you want, but right now we're doing things my way. So that was something that you know, made me understood where my place was, and and I was just a person that offered suggestions, and those suggestions you had to be smart about how you offer them because you just can't bombard a, a head coach with a thousand suggestions. And then when i was at ohio university i knew i was ready to become a head coach when the uh, head coach larry hunter started using my suggestions in practice and games so if he would, if i was good enough if he's if my suggestions were good enough for him to use well then why can i use it myself
0: do you think you could have developed into the head coach that you've become um or you know now you've had 25 years of experience that's so a little different but when you first started head coaching do you think um those early years as an assistant uh, contributed to your development more so than had you been, for example, a head coach at lower levels? Um, or do you think that you could develop sort of equally well or potentially even better um, rising the ranks a little bit as, as a head coach at lower levels rather than an assistant in
1: college? Well, I think it all depends on a person. I think it all depends on, the, on, on that person. For me, um, this was natural to do what I did as an assistant coach and to learn under a couple of different people and have an idea because a lot of times you learn what not to do um, as an assistant coach. I think a lot of times when you're on the ground and you're watching, it's a lot easier to learn that way than it is. Um, with those coaches that have never worked for anybody else, I think it's hard for them to manage a staff and understand your staff, but that's a big part about what we do. The reason that we're really successful at Yale is because I think I have the best staff in the league and they help me tremendously um in terms of everything that we do and i make sure they're vested and they feel included in that but i think that's a big part of understanding if you never were an assistant coach or have wasn't an assistant coach very long you you might have a hard time understanding what it's like to be an assistant and to treat your assistants the way they need to be treated to help you be the best version of yourself
0: yeah and i understand uh you know you did some coaching with uh u.s basketball as well and that was a nice reminder after you know, many years not being an assistant and being a head coach, you got to get a reminder again of what it's like to be an assistant. I'm sure that was pretty fruitful for uh, coming back to the program at Yale and and uh, maybe making some tweaks around how you uh, worked with your assistants there. Um, but I, I want to uh, get into you know Yale and and uh, you know your your coaching philosophy there and and basically your your key principles um, just for a bit of context for for the listeners. Um, it's pretty it's pretty incredible to look at like. You know, I think this is your. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's your 25th year at Yale, but your 24th season due to uh, you know taking a year off with COVID. And um, you know, the first 15 years, I think it was 15 seasons, uh, Yale finished I think first place maybe once in the in the Ivy League. Um, and it was it was like a competitive team. I think you guys were in the top half of the league for almost every season. I think all but one. I think you finished fifth one year, th- one year, but every everything else was like second, yeah. third, fourth.
1: Not, 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 not every every season we've been in the top half of the league except for my first year.
0: Okay yeah so that was that was maybe the fifth place finish was the first year. so it's been you guys were a top half of the Ivy League for your entire you know first 15 years coaching but um but you know couldn't quite get over the hump to like be first you, you got there once um, I think and then since then it's been like a total you know it's a totally different story. The last eight seasons um, you've won the Ivy League more often than not I think five times first or tied for first um maybe one second a couple times third uh you've won the conference tournament a couple times ncaa tournament appearances a few times including the big win over baylor uh fifth seed in 2016 so like this has become like a super legitimate program in the last eight seasons and not that it you know wasn't good for the the 15 before that like we said it's top half of the league every year but um was there something like sort of specific that that clicked um in these last you know basically you can cut your uh your coaching career at yale into uh you know thirds so the first two thirds and then the, the most recent third and the most recent third has been wildly successful is there something that happened or just the accumulation of, of little things that kind of uh you know turned the corner for the program
1: well first like we, we've been first and second the last uh eight years except for one year we finished third so in terms of what's going on like when i first got the job at yale um i'm sure you recall that Penn and Princeton had a dominance over the league for 40 years, so to to overtake a dominance it, it, it's, I mean it took some time to build and have people believe in you. You know we won a championship in our third year, but it was on piss and vinegar, and you know we were nowhere near as talented as those those other teams were that um that year. So it's one of those. It's really difficult to to win a championship if your team isn't as talented as your opponents, and we we were not as talented as our opponents top to bottom. So um, that growth over time that it took to build and have student athletes believe in what we were doing at Yale, uh, that's what took time and that's what's changed. Um, The other part about it is that, you know, you talk about our philosophy in terms of what we're doing. I think that's been a big part of it as well. What we've done is is that we've cultivated who we are. Um, We have a program now in a culture and that culture is based on um, defending, rebounding, sh- and sharing. And we feel if you do those three things at a high level, you're going to be have a chance to be really successful. So I, I think that if you were to ask my, uh, t- my first 15 years, ask the players on my team what Yale basketball was, you might come up with 15 different answers if you ask 15 different kids. But now if you ask any kid in the last 10 years or so what Yale basketball is based on, or what, or what? who we are, they'll tell you we're going to rebound defend, and share the ball. So I think that's been a big part of it too.
0: Yeah, so let me ask you, um, for those first 15 years, are you getting different answers because it changed from year to year what your, you know, two or three or four main focuses were, like what Yale basketball was? Or was it because you didn't as explicitly have a two or three th- or four things at all we and you just had a bunch of things?
1: It, we didn't explicitly, not like we had a bunch of things. It, it just... We, we probably we changed a little bit year to year in terms of what we emphasized and and who we were um because it had to change in terms of the players that we had i mean you know like you can say you want to rebound defend and share but if you don't have the players that can do that well that's kind of hard to have that uh concepts for your team so it took a while to, to have that growth and understanding but i do i don't think we were as clear-cut and again my first head coaching job i don't believe we were as is clear cut in terms of what we were demanding from our young men as we are now
0: yeah and it it seems to me you know I'm sort of uh studying these different coaches and and their philosophies and trying to piece together my own and this year you know I was like I said it was JV high school so it's a very different game and um I had our three focuses basically was like um, 100% effort um strong team defense strong team defense and uh you know, fast break points because most of these points in these games are coming from like transition layups and things like that, or the other teams turning it over and, and things like that. So, um, those were like sort of the three focuses. Yours being rebounding, defending, sharing the ball, obviously, it's a different game, like I said. But how did you arrive at, at those three things? Because, like, obviously, they're fundamental defense, super fundamental, rebounding, super fundamental, sharing the ball, maybe the least obvious of, of the three. Um, how did you sort of come to those um, as like the three tenants?
1: Well, I think that, like, when you're trying to base your team and build it, you know, you, you start with defense for me. That's my that's my thought. I was always a heavily defensive-minded coach um, to the point where we've had practices to start the year where we wouldn't even take a shot because I was trying to emphasize how important defense was, um, you know, being able to stop people. So that's where it started with the defense. And then rebounding is something that's always been a part of who I was as a player um, and the importance of that. But the one thing that we do with it is that we have rebounding drills in practice every single day. There's a reminder about rebounding every single day. We practice foul line blockout. So I've talked to coaches that tell me they don't even do any rebounding drills in practice. So that that was a big part of it. And the sharing, as you said, the least obvious of the three – It's the most important because it's hard to have young men on your team feel vested if they don't feel like they're a part of the offense. And uh, we had a young man in our program that was the blackest black hole uh, out of anybody that's ever played college basketball. His name is Greg Nangano. And Greg led the league in scoring, rebounding, and block shots. And if his head wasn't made out of bricks, he'd be just just retiring from the NBA right now. Um, But he had a long career playing overseas. Uh, in any event, uh, I had him in my office one day and uh, because he wouldn't pass the ball to anybody. He had 17 assists his senior – no, sorry, 14 assists his senior year. Um, so that's like his entire senior year he had 14 assists. And I brought him to my office. I sat him down. I showed him video of him getting triple team in the post and trying to score and turn the ball over. And I thought it would be easy for him to understand the importance of passing the ball. But he looked at me, looked at the video, looked at me, looked at the video, and said, "Coach, I think we're better off with me shooting than passing to either one of those two guys in the wide open." So at this point, I knew I I had to change because it was I had to, it wasn't Greg Mangano' problem; it was a James Jones problem because our offense was geared to get him the ball. But I thought that he would be understanding the importance of finding somebody if he was double teams. and and for whatever reason, he could not understand that concept.
0: Right. So I like to sort of plug into each of those things they are all very interesting. Uh, the first being teaching defense, always being a defensive minded coach. Um, one of the things that's been interesting for me, I, I had to get through like some state licensing stuff. So I actually wasn't even able to join the team until um, after like a few weeks of, of practice, basically. Um, and so I didn't have like a full opportunity to have like a preseason. And you know, if and when I coach, again, I, I'm looking forward to doing that. And so I, I basically had to pick very few things. To practice because my practices were basically limited to, you know, in between games when sometimes you have to rest legs and there's only so much you can basically teach um when you have like as many practices as as you do games over the course of the season. So next year I, I definitely want to like sequence things out more explicitly and be able to teach more than I was able to get in this year. Um, how do you think about sequencing the things that you introduced to your team from you know day one of practice onward? um and particularly maybe it might be easier to sort of explain that and and go through that with just a defensive only sort of approach how do you sort of stage teaching defense over the course of a season and training defense
1: well we we start off by one-on-one then we get to two-on-two three-on-three four-on-five and we build it up to five-on-five it's a slow build in terms of what we're doing creating concepts we start with a lot of closeouts um because that's a huge part about what we do because we're a gap-oriented team so We're going to help out in the gaps, which is going to cause uh, closeouts. And if your closeouts are bad, that's going to lead to easy offense from other teams. They get you in scramble mode. They want to bend and break you. So we want to make sure that our defense doesn't bend and we stay strong and we help each other out and we also help the helper. So we start off with one-on-one drills, like I said, two-on-two, three-on-three, and we build up to our shell four-on-four and we do five-on-five shell. So that's the progression of it. And then as you get into the season – We started, uh, you know, obviously we have our concepts and our philosophies on how we're playing defensively. As I said, gaps, gap help and help them recover. But then we start um, going over the scouts for each team in terms of what they do and how they play and making sure that we're able to take away either what they do a lot or what may give us problems.
0: Right. Um, I, I grew up a big Syracuse basketball fan, so obviously like a, a fan of the 2-3 zone. And, and when I got to this high school team this year, that's what they, they they had run some man, but they had also run some zone. And I just decided based on the simplicity of it um, to, to stick with the zone. So we ran the zone the entire season. Have you ever been intrigued or interested by the zone, whether it's, you know, obviously you haven't converted to it, uh, you know, full time, but using it in, in certain moments or against certain teams for certain reasons?
1: No, I have no belief in zone at all. Uh, why, I don't why is believe, that? Like, well, number one, let's start off with younger kids. I don't think we should ever teach young kids to play a zone. They don't want any concepts of playing a man because the game is going to break down to man-to-man. Um, and unless, unless you can guard man-to-man, it's going to be very, very difficult to be successful. So for me, as a unless you are a Syracuse zone, where that's what you do 99% of the time, then all you're doing with your zone is you're rolling the dice and hoping another team misses. You're hoping that you're trying to change up tempo sometimes um, that we might use. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we played a zone possession, more than two or three zone possessions all year. Uh, it's just not something I, I feel comfortable with in terms of uh, holding guys accountable. It's hard to hold kids accountable when you're playing a zone because there's always somebody else they can point to as, well, coach, I thought he was going to – no, no, no. In a man-to-man – you can point things out in terms of what you're going to do a great deal easier for me. And that's just who I am. That's how I was brought up. So it's not, it's not something I believe in. I don't, I think it's hard to be successful if you're playing a zone. I think that you can schematic and beat some teams, but I think it's hard to win championships playing zone.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Um, And then moving over to rebounding, um, you mentioned you do a lot of drills, including like, you know, boxing out on free throws and, and things like that what are some of your uh, favorite rebounding drills that you think are most effective?
1: Well, like we start the year off doing what was called animal ball back when I was a a player where you have um, three teams and you set them up around three, uh, one team along the foul line, one team on one lane line, the other team around the other lane line. So let's go blue, white and gray. So one player from each team is in in and they got to get a a rebound and they got to get a score while two guys are trying to defend him. Once he scores, the drill doesn't – one guy scores, the drill doesn't stop. Someone from his team bounces in to try to uh, to score as well. And you keep doing that to every one of your players on your team scores. So the guys around the around the lane line and the foul line, if the ball is coming out, they just tip it back in. It's sort of like a cage match of guys fighting for the ball. So that, that's, that's one thing that we do that I like in terms of teaching toughness because if you're not tough – it's hard to be successful in that drill. Yeah, And then then we do a, a drill like it's three on three. You have three guys around the perimeter. There's a coach, and he's going to pass it to one of the guys on the perimeter. You have three guys in the lane, and they're, they're, they're numbered one, two, and three. The coach is going to call one of the numbers. So say he calls two and passes the ball to one of the wings. Then whoever's two has got to get out to that wing and contest the shot. The other two guys have got to talk and communicate, who's going to block out the other two guys. And the defense has got to get three defensive rebounds in a row to get out. If the offense gets the ball, they just continue to play offense. If they score, they get another rebound, they keep scoring. It it doesn't stop until the defense gets a rebound, but it only counts as one if you get the first miss. If you get the second or third miss, you're just playing, and you start back at zero.
0: Right. So a lot tough. of, uh, you know, toughness and, and conditioning in these rebounding drills as well, not strictly like focused on just, you know, rebounding or, or uh, you know, uh, the particulars of how to best secure rebounds, but really live action and three on three and stuff like that.
1: So let me tell you something. If you're in that drill and you got to get three to get out and you get two, four times and you don't get it, you know how desperate you become and how much you want, like how important a rebound becomes to you. And that's the that's the concept that we're trying to get off to our kids. On everyone, we want everybody, we want every kid to think that it's the fourth time around, and you're trying to get out of, trying to get a rebound, and you're tired and you're beat up, and that's how important it is for you to get this rebound. We'd like our kids to think of every rebound that way.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a great drill. Are there others, um, you know, expanding rather than narrowing to just rebounding? Are there other drills that you feel are just like you need a a a go-to drill or two?
1: There's a ton of them that we do. Like I said, we do a different one every day. We do dummy rebounding where we just practice swing, swing and spin. Um, we do the ball in the air and uh, off the ground, and you got to jump up and grab it with two hands. We do back-to-back where we just have guys uh, line up along along the, uh, the middle of court, and they get back-to-back, and they, they, they're trying to uh, get position, and low man wins and who gets more space. And so, yeah, there are a ton of drills that we do.
0: How did you build your playbook of drills over the years? Uh, was it, you know, going to clinics and listening to guys like Beeline? Was it, you know, like, what's, how do you think about, like, the framework for building your set of how you've built practice?
1: I think the great thing about coaches is that we all steal from each other. And it does, it, there's a number of different places where you can find drills. And, like, you know, I'll go to a high school practice and I'll get a drill from a high school practice. I'll watch a video and I'll get a drill from a video that just comes like now, like, you know, I get all these videos set and and like, I don't watch them all, but you know, you watch, you know, uh, videos of other coaches and you find things out. So it's just a, a, and you just find what you think you like. And I think that's what it is. I just, I have found things that I like over the years from a number of different sources, not just one, just a number of different sources to help me become a better coach. And now 25 years in, you know, there's not much that I add new, but every now and again, like my assistant coach may come up with something or I may see something that I'm someplace and, oh, yeah, I'd like to add that. I, that's a nice morsel that I'd mm-hmm. like to add. And I was actually talking to my team, the other my staff the other day, and I've I'm, I'm, I'm forgotten half the drills I've done you know, over the, over the course of 25 years.
0: Right. So another thing you mentioned was, uh, you know, keeping players vested. It, it helps to share the ball, uh, make everyone feel like a part of the game. Another challenge is, you know, not just for the guys who are in there, making sure everyone touches the ball, but um, for the guys who you just can't play that many minutes, um, you know, passing the minutes around uh, as a coach. So how do you think about uh, like, well, a couple questions here. One is uh, the actual number of players on the team. I think this year you've got like 16, 17 players, which might be uh, higher, higher than usual for you. So how yes. do you think about like the right number of players? And then once you have them, how do you think about you know spreading minutes and and uh you know communicating with the guys who aren't getting as many or any minutes about you know why they're not and how they can still help the team and everything like that
1: well we have 16 players on our roster mainly due to covid we have a, a junior class of six guys because we had two guys take gap year so in any event that's not, that's why we have the number that we have in terms of making sure guys are vested I think it's something that you got to communicate every day in practice how important guys are Um, because you can't play everybody and everybody's got to understand that. Like, I mean, you know um, you're going to have an eight, nine man rotation, you know, maybe 10 in some spots in some situations, but you're not going to play 10 kids, 10 players every game. Uh, At least most coaches aren't. So you want to make sure that those young men that come to practice every day, that they understand their importance. And you got to have conversations with them where we have, you know, we meet three, four times a year to talk about who they are and what they're doing. We chart every every practice every day and those kids that aren't playing, they know what their numbers are. This is why you're not playing because the guys above you are doing better than you are. So you got to try, you got to be better in practice. So that's one way to motivate those guys to be better in practice to try to get there. Um, because again, everybody can't play and you know, I'm at Yale, so it's logic and is intelligence. So kids understand that like, okay, well, Johnny's better Johnny shoots 38% from the arc and I shoot 28%. Why would coach put me in the game over Johnny? Because he likes me? No, because Johnny's better than I am. Or Johnny's shot the ball better than I am. And I have to prove myself. I have to work hard. I have to get in the gym. I think that's one of the things that our guys do. The kids that don't play, they're they're heavily involved in the gym, getting extra time, getting extra lifts, getting stronger because they want to play. So it's a motivation thing for them. And you want to have kids like that, and the that we, for us that we do.
0: Right. So what is, uh, understanding this is an unusual year because of COVID, what's your ideal number for pl- number of players
1: on the team? I'd say, well, 16 guys, uh, and maybe one of them being a walk-on. So 15 kids you recruited and one kid being a walk-on. That's happy to be there. But, you know, most of the walk-ons I have, they're not treated like walk-ons. They're treated like every other player on the team. And they 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 they, they, they feel like they're a recruited athlete, too. So, you know, they they want to play as well and you know, they're pretty I have had walk-ons that have had, that has helped that have helped us in games. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we get that uh, like 15, 16 guys cuz you know, not four on four, you know, two on two having an even number that that usually works for me.
0: Right. And then um just cuz I've been thinking about this a lot actually, I'm curious like what would be the key problems for you, if you had twelve guys or or uh, you know nineteen guys, let's say like way too many, way too little. What what are like what well, comes into play as the problem?
1: Well, nineteen, you got too many disgruntled employees. So um, if you have if you're playing eight and you got nineteen, so that means there are eleven disgruntled employees on your team. So that's more guys, and of the eight guys that you play, two or three of them are probably not hundred percent happy because they're not starting. Right. So now you have. You may be 13 uh, disgruntled employees, and that's way more than you want to have because now that locker room, in a sense of voices that you hear, you know, what I like to think of when guys complain in my in my locker room, if they do, somebody shuts them down because it's more about the team than it is about an individual. So I think that having too many guys and having too many guys that don't play, you know, uh, misery loves company, and you can get guys kind of like feeling that feeling one way about themselves together which is no good for your program. Um, And then if you have 12, the 12 is the the injury problem. Like if you get too many guys injured, you can't even practice. You got three guys injured, can't practice today. Can't practice five on five anyway. So that limits what you can do if you have injuries.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So 15, 16 being kind of the sweet spot and 16 may be preferable for four on four, two on two having even numbers and and things like that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, So... Uh moving to slightly different topic. I know right now you're on a uh recruiting trip and, and taking this call from the car, which I appreciate. Like I said, uh obviously that's a busy part of of being a coach, uh, you know, at the college level, you know, coaching D1. Um, just out of curiosity, like how how much time, you know, at different points in the season, off season, in season, et cetera, do you spend on recruiting as sort of a piece of the overall pie? And uh, you mentioned also earlier, uh, you know, kind of the two big differences between your first 15 years and the last eight or 10 was, you know, not only installing this very explicit philosophy, which anyone in the last eight or 10 years could reiterate and, and knows well, um, but also just fundamentally getting better players and the time it takes to be able to recruit better players and, and build a better program. So, um, you know, curious about the time allocation bit. And then also how you've improved in the recruiting department over time.
1: Um, I'm sorry, say that first part again. The oh, time allocation in terms of recruiting—we're always recruiting. There's you're never not recruiting. Like you, it's it's year round in terms of how much time. It's hard to um, hard to uh, put a a, a a time or a number on how much you do, but you know they're you know you're recruiting the kids that are still in your program still. You're uh, re-recruiting them. You're recruiting the, uh, re-recruiting the kids that are committed to you. And now now you're looking for the next class of guys that you're, you're handling the class behind them. So there's all kinds of uh, emails and text messages and phone calls that go on, kids visiting campus, um, going off to see kids. I, I don't see too many kids during the course of the year because it's very difficult um, to fly places um, to see kids. So that's, that's tough to do. But I do get out. Uh, probably a half dozen to a dozen times throughout the basketball season to watch somebody play, unless they're local. Some local kids I can see a little bit on like a Tuesday night after practice, that makes it easy. But taking a trip to fly somewhere or drive three or four hours, that's probably somewhere between, you know, eight to 12 times a year during the season. Um, In terms of uh, our, our recruiting getting better, I think that, you know, it's gotten better because we've had more success. Um, you know, it's easy to, to sell a program when you've won championships. It's easy to sell a program when you've had a kid drafted in the NBA. It's easy to sell a program when you have first league, uh, first team all league players. It's easier to do that because, you know, people want to be a, a, that's why Penn and Princeton was so successful. Why they had a such a stronghold on this league for so long is because of their success.
0: Right. So, um, another question sort of uh going on a tangent like I think the little things that you do as a coach or at least this was sort of uh what I was telling the kids this year was like the a lot of the little things you do as a coach and you do as a player all these little things you do them right and you do them well and they add up to you know the big things Bill Walsh famous football coach has a book uh the score takes care of itself there's stories of uh you know John Wooden tells the story how when he started the first team meeting I think he told the players how to put on the socks and and tie their shoes so that they could avoid blisters and things like this, Is there um, are there particular little things that you've done or sort of implemented at Yale over the years that may not even be sort of obviously basketball-related that you think have had sort of an outsized impact in, in improving the program?
1: Well, um, I do something every day. Um, I'm not sure when I came up with this. You know, I have a word of the day. And uh, it's something that, you know, goes on or something I think our team needs. So I talk about it. And, um, you know, I, I have it on a on a, on a a practice plan and the guys have got to read it. And when we have a drink break at practice, I ask the one kid the word of the day. If he doesn't know, we do push-ups. Um, and then he, he he says the word and gives a definition. And then I kind of get on a soapbox and talk about something I think our team needs. Like, um, you know, if we're, um, you know, if I have guys that are frustrated, the word of the day may be frust- frustration and explain that and explain why it's harmful for our team. I think that gives me a way of being able to get inside and to be able to talk to our guys about something that is about basketball, but not directly about basketball.
0: What do you think might be some of your most frequently reoccurring words over the years?
1: Oh, I, I that's hard for me to say. I, I mean, you know, I, I think that the, the thing that we do most often is to just to let the kids know that we love and care for them. And that they always have somebody that, that, has their back i think that's what's the main thing that's important kids don't care what you know until they know you care so um you know i think that's the message that i've tried to send over the course of my time here
0: right so uh one more question and then i want to get into uh just a little bit on actually this season very exciting season but one more question sort of more generally on coaching um what's your when, when you get into the game and you're like the game is ongoing um what's your style during the game as a coach, what are you focused on? What do you have the assistants focused on because you don't really want to focus on that. Bring me like into a game situation as, as the coach, what do you think you do, um, you know, differently than, than other coaches?
1: I I have no idea what other coaches do or what other coaches go through their mind. I I know with me, uh, I'm looking at, you know, obviously both sides of the ball in terms of how they're guarding what we do. And then are uh, we sticking to our game plan or how we're trying to guard them? Those are the two areas in which I'm paying most attention to. Um, you know, my my assistant coaches may be watching ball screen coverage or matchups um, for, for a given game, who's guarding whom or where we have an advantage or who they have an advantage against and and, and how we want to take care of that. But those are the things that go through my mind. It's hard to say, you know, what other coaches are thinking about or what what they're concentrating on when they watch a game.
0: No, yeah, that's a that's a great answer. That's what I was looking for. Um, so now turning the page a little bit to uh, focus on this season, talk about this season a little bit. Um, I heard you quoted on another podcast saying this is probably the best team you've ever had, top to bottom. Um, and you know, so far in the season, I think that was maybe a preseason podcast or early season so far. Um, you know, your guys' performance has reflected that. Um, doing very well in in the league and and also just against other opponents. Uh, two of your handful of losses have been you know one was at gonzaga the other was at kansas um actually just on that while i bring that up i understand scheduling has been sort of an interesting uh, thing that you've developed over the years as well for getting yale to be able to play against more difficult teams um but it's been challenging right like people don't want to play yale because it could be like if you get beat then it's like a bad loss but there's not a whole lot of upside so how, how do you go about getting like schools like gonzaga and, and kansas on the schedule
1: well, you get lucky sometimes. Um, like right now, this year, we're having a hard time finding high major games for next year uh, for the reasons you just stated. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, th- there are relationships that you have with certain guys, and you can call up guys you know and ask them if they can, if you want to play, that you have friends. Like, I was trying to get a game with, with um, Purdue because I know Painter, we run a uh, basketball committee for the U19 team with USA Basketball, and same thing with uh, Jamie Dixon at TCU. Uh, we have a kid in Dallas trying to get home. It's just been very difficult to try to uh, for, for people to play us. It's, it's it's something that we, it's a challenge, you know, and, and I guess it's a good thing because it means we're pretty good, but it just makes my life a little bit more difficult than putting the schedule together.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. So um, anyway, aside from those couple of difficult games this year, you guys, and even in the, I think, Kansas game, you were up at halftime, like really you know I think historically even over the last several years when you guys get to play these big matchups uh you show up and that's why people probably don't want to play Yale um so so far this season I guess what's your uh you know if you could sort of pause for a moment and just sort of like look back on on where you guys are and where where you've gotten to right now and uh obviously a good chunk of league games coming up and Postseason play. So, um, what do you sort of? What's your evaluation at this point of the season? And uh, what do you think you guys need to sort of improve upon or or do better to uh, finish the season the way you want to?
1: Well, I think that um, early on in the season uh, we were trying to figure uh, find our way, um, and I think that we've finally gotten to the point where we've gotten to be in a good place in terms of understanding who we are and how we should play. Um, and you know, as I look at my team right now. It's similar to what I envisioned at the start of the year. Um, I think that we can be a little cleaner offensively. Teams are kind of throwing junk at us a little bit. Um, You know, matchups, uh, putting a a four-man on our five-man, playing a triangle in two, uh, switching all all our screening action. Um, So, you know, um, we need to continue to make sure that offensively we're fluent and uh, when we get a lead, to uh, to stay with the uh, same thing we're doing, we've had times where we've gotten a little careless when we've gotten a lead. So I, I think those are the areas that I, I'd like to improve. I like what we're doing defensively. Um, we we are we are the best team in the league in our league offensively and defensive in terms of efficiency. So if we can keep that up, we'll have a good chance at winning the conference. Right, and um,
0: right. I know you guys had I think. Uh, four starters from last year returning, all of whom average double figures, I believe. So that's always a good sign. And then um, you've got another guy who returned, uh, Danny Wolf, who is the leading scorer this season, and I think he averaged just a couple points last year. So maybe just taking that as a case study, like that seems like from afar, without being you know super familiar with with Danny or anything, that seems like an incredibly impressive year of development. Is there something? that happened there that you can point to?
1: No, I think it was just Danny's time. I think last year, Danny uh, had a learning curve and he was behind two seniors that were really good. So I I think that was the the biggest issue. And I think it's great when a freshman could come in and learn as opposed to trying to figure it out for himself. So he's certainly ready to play right now. And he's proven that he's done a great job for us. And I think his best basketball is ahead of him. And I, I look forward to, have an opportunity to watch them
0: grow. How does Yale differ from, uh, or, or maybe you can speak for sort of the Ivy League at large t- to some extent, differ from a lot of other teams, the top teams in college basketball that, um, you know, have to deal more so with, uh, you know, on the one hand, transfers and then on the other, uh, for, you know, some of the top, top programs, obviously NBA, people leaving early for the NBA. Um, how is the Yale, how has Yale and, and the Ivy League? A little bit different. Do you view that as sort of like a positive that you maybe have to deal less so with those things? Uh, how do you think about that?
1: Well, we actually lost Nia only a year early, which was not good. And, but like you said, that's a rarity that you have when guys are gonna leave early. But it, it's it's great for our league that we could we could stay together and and not have our rosters just explode and change so often. I, I think that um, I look at college basketball tonight now, and it's not it doesn't look like anything that it was when I first started and we're in a state of transition. It's not what it was. It is not what it's going to be. And, you know, it's going to be, I'm going to be curious to see what it looks like um, after I retire and and how the, how, how college basketball works. Uh, It's a tremendous sport. It's a great watch on television. Um, So I, I hope that it doesn't change too much, but, you know, I'm actually afraid for our sport in terms of some of the things that have come into it and, And what's happening and we are certainly i suspect that most college coaches um would prefer to be coaching in the ivy league just in terms of how rosters remain the same as opposed to all the craziness they have to deal with the transfer portal or nil
0: yeah it makes sense i mean i know even just from uh when i watched college basketball growing up to to today it's changed tremendously obviously had some nba exits at that time but not nearly the transfer's and um it seemed like just a lot less one and done in terms of the the NBA guys as well. Um, last question for you. Uh again, I appreciate it all the time, but uh for this season looking back, or even if it's if there's nothing from this season that stands out just overall in your coaching career, is there a particular story of a team in a game or um, you know, even an individual player or coaching moment? Um, I'm sure there's, you know, a million of them, but is there one that stands out that you can maybe tell or, or speak to just because I know from you know doing what I did this year, there's just so many moments that are so cool and uh really awesome in terms of you know having an impact on a kid's life or having an impact on the team and, and how they remember their experience. Um is there a story that comes to mind that you might be able to tell
1: yeah so um we won uh the first year in which we went to the NCAA tournament was 2016. We had one uh championship in 2015 tied with Harvard. We had beaten Harvard on Friday night at their place, and we went up to Dartmouth. If we win that game, we win the outright championship uh, in Ivy League for the first time in you know, 40 years or whatever it was. And we end up losing the game on a last-second shot played by Dartmouth. Um, horrific loss for the program. Uh, the next year, we never really talked about it. We built up, and so we go up to Cornell, and we beat Cornell, and um, we're 12- and one at the time, and I think we're one game ahead of, um, of Princeton. And so maybe tie with Princeton, I'm not sure. And then, um, so we're on a bus driving to uh, Columbia, and everybody on the team is on their device watching their game on the Ivy League Digital Network at the time. And there was a kid by the name of Steve who tapped the ball who blocked the shot. We scored a basket and blocked a shot to seal the win for Harvard. And at that point, we won the Ivy League championship. And there was just unbelievable joy, childhood joy, of our players jumping up and screaming and yelling on a bus because they're so happy that they won. It was like, you know, if you watch, you know, twelve-year-olds uh, win the World, a uh, little league World Series. That was the feeling that went through the bus and it was something that that i'll never forget and i'm certain the
0: players won't either yeah i uh i was fortunate to experience something like that at at a you know it's it's a little easier to find those moments like you said with the younger kids maybe and uh i was fortunate to have that be sort of the uh the end to our season the other day which is part of what was what made it such a cool experience so anyway sounds awesome to be able to recreate that at, at the d1 level obviously these guys are uh you know, becoming men at that point and it, it becomes even harder to sort of find that uh childhood joy and a and a real genuine celebration. So um anyway it's it's been a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing all these nuggets of wisdom with me. Um is there anywhere you want to send people to, you know, uh follow you or, or Yale basketball and uh, you know, keep in touch with with you on, on your journey. Well yeah
1: there's a Yale basketball uh, on Instagram. Um so just, just go to Yale basketball on Instagram, Mail Finance and that's a great way to follow
0: us awesome well thank you again coach i really appreciate it
1: you be good man take care